Dear Father, we thank you for preserving this word for us, though it's one of the shortest books in the entire canon. Uh, we can recognize its importance, uh, all that it has to teach us, and the context that it has to deliver for us uh, regarding the first epistle of John. Uh, so we pray that you would enlighten us by means of your spirit, that you would help us to apply this doctrine in our lives uh, so that we might walk by means of the truth. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. I think that's probably the longest section of scripture I've given Paul to read yet, but uh, rest assured, we're mostly just going to focus on verse one. Um, we're not going to get much past that today. Uh, originally, I had planned this message for three messages, uh, but we're going to do it in two. Uh, so this time, we're going to do the background, the context, what exactly is Second John, uh, because this is one of the most disputed books in the entire canon. In fact, uh, a quick search on Wikipedia will tell you that majority consensus is that this book shouldn't be in the Bible. And so we're going to look at why it should be in the Bible. To do that, we want to know who wrote it, who, wrote, who he wrote it to, and why he wrote it. And uh, that's going to be very important for us. And so we are in our final section of going through John's epistles. This is fellowship in practice. We got a whole bunch of doctrine in 1 John. And this is not the only book that he wrote. So we venture outside of 1 John for the first time in six months, and we look at 2 John. And here he is talking about practicing truth and love. Truth and love are two topics that he spent a lot of time discussing in 1 John. Here he is giving us some application for it. So our main point for this morning is that God is truth. To know truth, we must know his word. And God is love. To know love, we must learn it from his revelation of himself in his word. That's supposed to be a little redundant. That's kind of the main idea. Truth and love are intimately intertwined. Truth and love are not opposed or balanced with one another. It's not a scale where one has to um, decrease for the other to increase. They are interdependent. With truth preceding love, truth produces love in the believer. That's contrary to what the world believes, what the world thinks. And this is one of the main contributions of Second John to our understanding. So as I said, we're going to spend a bit of time on the background. We're going to understand some of the doctrine taught in this book by its background. Now, one of the major disputes about this book is who wrote it. Because just like 1 John, it's basically anonymous. The author signs it simply, the elder. The elder to the chosen lady. Now, external evidence, which is evidence that's not inside the text itself, but in history, points towards John, the apostle, as the author. Origen, via Eusebius, said in the third century that this text belonged to John. The only problem is Eusebius seems to be a little ambiguous, and he at one point says John the Apostle, and at another point says John the Elder. And so some have come in and said, well, there must be two different Johns. In fact, they make John the Apostle one, John the Elder one, John who wrote the Apocalypse another, they try to separate this into three different Johns and say that these don't have the same author when they very clearly do. 
Jerome as well, who wrote the, or who translated the Latin Bible, also attributed this book to John. Now, 3rd century and 4th century, this was the very first time that these books were canonized into the Bible. So for the first 200 years that they existed, they weren't actually included in the canon. But that doesn't mean that they weren't understood as scripture. Here's what Origen said, um, as Eusebius recorded it. He said, what shall we say of him who reclined upon the breast of Jesus? Who is that? That's John, John the Apostle, who has left one gospel in which he confesses that he could write so many that the whole world could not contain them. He who also wrote the Apocalypse, commanded as he was to conceal and not to write the choice, oh, uh, the voices of the seven thunders. So here Eusebius says John wrote both the Gospel and the Apocalypse. What else does he say? He has also left an epistle consisting of very few lines. In other words, it's short, especially con uh, compared to John's Gospel of 21 chapters and John's Revelation of 22 chapters, John's epistle was just five chapters, very few lines. Suppose also that a second and third is from him. For not all agree that they are genuine, but both agree, or both together do not contain a hundred lines. And that's very true. These two epistles that we're going to look at this week and in two weeks, third John, if you put them together, they are still shorter than the next shortest epistle. The epistle of Jude and the epistle of Philemon are almost tied for third and fourth shortest. These two epistles are tiny, and so they, uh, they may easily pick out of the canon, but if it's God's word, we want it in the canon. And so that's what we are looking at. There's also some historical quotations. Quotations by early church fathers is one way that we understand what was accepted as scripture and what was not. Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna before AD 140, so within 50 years of John writing this book, it was being quoted by Polycarp. Now, Polycarp eventually took over for John after John was killed. Polycarp was, in essence, his uh, forerunner, or his, not predecessor, he came after John. What does Polycarp say? Well, he quotes 2 John 7. He says, for everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is an antichrist. Now, this is the exact wording of 2 John 7, but close to the wording of 1 John 4.2. So some say that he's actually just quoting 1 John 4.2. Irenaeus, however, in AD 180 quotes um, 1 and 2 John, but he quotes them as if they are one book. And this is going to be important later. Irenaeus attributes... 2 John to the same author as 1 John. Now, Aurelius of Chalabi at the Council of Carthage in AD 256, so within 150 years of John writing this book, he quotes 2 John 10 through 11, but he cites 1 John. Again, that's going to be important in a minute. So that's our external evidence. It's quoted as if it were part of 1 John, and it's attributed to John the Apostle. Within, John does identify himself, but he identifies himself as the elder. In the Greek, this is presbyteros, same word we get presbyterian from. 
and it just means overseer, an elder, uh, perhaps even a shepherd. Now, this is not uncommon, and in fact, this was very early on used for apostles. In Acts eleven twenty nine, when Peter comes to the apostles in Jerusalem, this is what is written. In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So when there was a famine in Jerusalem, those who were able to give contributed money, and it was distributed to the elders. These elders would have been in charge of distributing it to the people under their care. In Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, where we see James as the chief elder there, we see these apostles again equated with elders. Then it seems good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Bersabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. So this is how they signed it. Now John was part of this Jerusalem council. In fact, John didn't leave Jerusalem until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, at which point he went to Ephesus. So John here is identified together with James and together with Peter as apostles and elders. Now in 1 Peter, the apostle Peter identifies himself as a fellow elder. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Peter, an apostle here, is an elder, and in fact, at this point, he is emphasizing his role of eldership. He is exercising his role of overseeing a local church body in the city of Babylon. In Acts 20, when Paul is returning to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, he calls together all of the elders of the church of Ephesus. From Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now here it's elders, plural. Within Ephesus, there was more than one elder because the entire city, just like the city of Tacoma, did not have one local church but they were organized under the apostolic authority. And so John was probably, or possibly at this point, a part of these elders. He may not have been in Ephesus quite yet, but Timothy likely was. They called together these overseers of the church of Ephesus. And what does Paul say? He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Their goal, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is the role of an overseer. And chief among these overseers or elders are the apostles. And so you see this little thing marked in red here, in English, the, in the Greek, ha. This is a definite article. This is used when there is a singular and known antecedent. 
This elevates it above just generally an elder. This is the elder. It's as if we were to address someone as the president. Immediately, we would know that someone is speaking of Joe Biden. In a different context, perhaps. Maybe not. Maybe if we're in Korea and someone mentions the president, maybe then we think the Korean president. But here, it's the chief, the foremost. The elder and only John is able to say this at this point because he is the last remaining apostle. Anyone else to identify themselves as the elder and nothing else would be encroaching on John's authority. John is the last remaining apostolic authority. This role can only be held by him. So he is the chief overseer, the last remaining apostle. Also, we know that he is known by his audience. He doesn't need to state his name. In fact, if he said the elder John, he would be admitting that there are others having to identify himself specifically as John and not another elder. To say he is the elder recognizes that he is the chief. This highlights as well his pastoral office over his apostolic office. Remember in 1 John, he gives them his own authority to be a witness, which was that he saw the resurrected Christ. Here, he is not emphasizing his apostolic authority, but his position as an overseer. His job to the audience of this book is to care for them, to shepherd them. And we saw John's pastoral heart through all of 1 John. We saw how much he cared for the truth and the love of those who received it. In the book of 2 John, there's also a lot of linguistic similarities as well as similarities in message. For example, we can look at 1 John 2.7 next to 2 John 5. And we see that he uses vocatives far more than any of the other writers in the New Testament use vocatives. These are nouns of direct address to say, in essence, you people, you person. He explains why he's writing by using the Greek word for writing. I am writing or I have written. And then he gives his reason. He's talking about new commandments as opposed to old commandments. He presents it as that which they have had in the perfect tense, pointing back to the original message that they received from Christ. And this continual usage of aparche, this from the beginning. This is the original gospel message. This is the original message. He is not changing it. And then the goal that they love one another once they receive this truth. This is consistent in all of John's letters. In fact, the similarities can be seen in the vocabulary. The consistent emphasis of truth, love, abiding, antichrists, commandments, and deceivers. These words are used more by John than any other New Testament writer, and it's consistent in his letters as well. His style of using vocatives and stark contrasts, black and whites, with no gray area in between, and his emphasis on certain doctrines such as the incarnation of Christ, the sonship of Christ, in other words, the humanity and the deity of Christ, and the goal of unity and fellowship in the body and together with Christ, and the goal of obedience to God's word and his commandments. All of this points very conclusively to the fact that John is the writer of Second John. 
just as he was the writer of 1 John. Now, there's also another evidence that people don't really talk about that much, and that is linguistic productivity. In other words, if someone were trying to attribute this book to John and wrote it themselves to try to deceive someone, they would not have been as productive in using words that John almost never uses elsewhere. They would have been more consistent to only use those words and doctrines of John. But in the vocabulary, we see only in this second letter that John uses the word grace. It's not in 1 John. It's not in 3 John. And even in his gospel, 21 chapters, he only uses it four times. And in the book of Revelation, he only uses it twice, once at the beginning and once at the end. This is not a word John uses frequently. And it is very odd seeing it here in 2 John. No one else would have put that there. Mercy as well is found nowhere else in the entire Johannine canon. Not in the Gospel of John, not in 1st or 3rd John, not in Revelation. This is the only place we see this word mercy. Peace is found six times in the Gospel, twice in Revelation, and only one time in the letters in 3rd John. These are not Johannine words. As well, in 1st John, and in the Gospel of John, and as well in Revelation, John emphasizes consistently the doctrine of eternal life which is nowhere present at all in 2 John, at least not by vocabulary. Anyone trying to mimic John would have definitely included something about eternal life here, but he does not. As well, although we saw that John uses a vocative in 2 John, it's a unique vocative, one he doesn't use in the epistles of John. This is lady, curia. He uses it twice. And no other vocatives as well. He doesn't refer to anyone as children, anyone as young men, anyone as fathers, anyone as beloved. Just lady. Also, John only teaches on the doctrine of rewards in 2 John. Some people say that this is a Pauline doctrine because John doesn't mention it anywhere else. But here, it's in the context of 2 John, so he brings it up. Only John could do that. And as well, in 1 John, I don't know if you remember, but we almost never got a direct command. Do this, don't do this. This is not part of John's vocabulary. Rather, he would say, let's do this, or it would be good to do this. These are called mitigated demands. They're not as direct. They are encouraging. But here in 2 John, John gives direct commands. In other words, only John would have the freedom to write like John. Everyone else would try to mimic, and it would be very plastic to read. But this is a very productive letter. John takes liberties with what he introduces as doctrine here. Moving on to who it's to, because when you're dealing with a letter, these are actually two of the most important things. Who is it from and who is it to? It's from the Apostle John, and he is writing it, to the chosen lady and her children. Now, as a good dispensationalist, I like to take everything literally wherever possible. And so the first thing I want to examine is, is this a natural family? Is this an actual woman who has actual naturally born children? And there's quite a bit of evidence that this might in fact be, but there is trouble with most of this evidence. If this is a known woman, 
Some proposed that her name might be Eclecta, Electa, or Electra, someone that John actually knows, and they say this because this is the Greek word for chosen. Some think maybe this is not an adjective, but perhaps this is actually her name. So the lady, Electra. It seems nice, except when we move to 2 John verse 13, we see that it's no longer structured the same way, but we have the sister, the chosen one. So this the chosen one, Eclecta, is attributed as an adjective, not as a name. Also, when we look at what this verse actually says, the children of your chosen sister greet you. It begs the question, does Eclecta have a sister who is also named Eclecta? It seems ridiculous. Eclecta is almost certainly not this woman's name. Another proposal is that her name is Kyria, from the vocative Curia. Now this is possible. Both of these are names. Eclecta and Curia, they're both names. And that she is described then as the chosen woman. The problem here is, the definite article the, is not present in the Greek. Which, like we saw with John earlier, indicates that there was a specific person in mind. Here, there doesn't appear to be a specific person in mind. The chosen lady is not here. Perhaps a chosen lady. But that drives us to the conclusion that this is at least an unknown woman. Now, there is one other, uh, fairly common, though it's a little outdated at this point, proposal that John is writing to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he uses this title rather than her name, because naturally in the Roman Empire, when Christians are being hunted, you wouldn't want to indicate that the Lord's mother is actually receiving a letter. Someone intercepted this letter, they would lead, it would lead them directly to Mary. So some have proposed that this might be a code name for Mary. The problem with this is actually a very simple one. If Jesus was born in 6 BC, even if he was born in 1 AD, which um, is less likely, and Mary was 14 when she had him, this would make her age 50 at the cross. So it would be, she would be between 100 and 110 in AD 90. This is pretty old, especially for back in those days. Most women did not make it to 100. In fact, at this point, John is in his late 70s or early 80s, and he is an old man. The other problem was John was supposed to keep Mary with him. And this he likely did until the day that she died. He was to take her into his household, not have her so distant that he needs to write a letter to her in order to tell her not to be entertaining false teachers in her home, there to share the same home. This is almost certainly not Mary. But now we have the question, is this an anonymous woman? There's three main problems with that. John interchanges the singular and the plural. Sometimes he will say to you using the singular, and at other times he will say to you using the plural. One would be according to sense and one according to grammar. Speaking to the woman, he would be using the singular. And in fact, he always begins with the singular and drifts into the plural because the idea is likely 
a plural. And it's once he gets two commands that he is giving it in the plural. As well, if this is a woman, it is the only book in the entire Bible, the only letter written to a woman. Other than that, there is not a single instance. As well, though this is a time of persecution, John does not shy away from using people's names. It would be odd for him to disguise this woman's name. In 3 John, he writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. He uses his name. 3 John 9, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. John is okay with using names if he knows the name. He is not trying to disguise anyone. The evidence does seem to weigh very heavily against a natural family, which, of course, as a good dispensationalist who likes a literal, historical, grammatical, contextual method of interpretation, when I have to shift something from literal to figurative, I want to be very careful when I do that. I want all of the evidence to weigh very strongly in the other direction, and I think this does. And in fact, when we were in 1 John, we saw the same exact thing. Use of a metaphor of a spiritual family. And so, this may be speaking of a local church. To a woman, a local church personified. This fits with John's use of direct address, where he refers to the children of God. He refers as well to fathers, young men, and children in a sense of young kids. John uses these terms of family address. In fact, you might say that Peter writes to the government of God. Paul writes to the, I uh, can't remember what it says he writes to. Uh, John writes to the family of God. So we've got God's family, God's body. Oh, that's it. Paul writes to the body. Uh, John writes to the family. This is consistent with John's use of family terminology. In 2 John 5, he says, Now I ask you, Ladia, or lady, which is the Greek word kuria, not as though I were writing to a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. In 1 John 3, 1, he addresses God as the Father and we as his children. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. In 1 John 4.21, this is this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. In the family of God, we have brothers and sisters that are our fellow believers. And now John has also addressed the doctrine of identity with Christ, that we as believers are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You'll remember this in 1 John 4.17. As he is, so also are we in this world. In 1 John 3, we saw the doctrine of imputed righteousness as well, that 
Our righteousness comes from our identity in Christ with his righteousness living in us. So when we come here to this word kuria, we also note that this is the only usage of this word in the entire New Testament. In fact, it's not the usual word for lady or woman, which is the Greek word gune, used 231 times in the New Testament. This unique word requires a unique explanation. And that explanation is actually fairly sim simple. This is the feminine word for Jesus' title of Lord. The church identified together as the body of Christ. John says, or therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord, the kurios. In John 17, 20 through 21, Jesus prayed to God the Father about our unity together with him. And in this term of kuria, we see that John recognizes this unity. The church's identity is Christ's identity. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. There is also plenty of precedent in Scripture for personifying the body of the church, especially for personifying her as a woman. In Ephesians 5.28, we see, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Christ and the church have become one flesh because we have received his identity. Revelation 19.7, the church is referenced as the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. And in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter references the church as she, she who is in Babylon, his local church that he is an overseer of there. This is also consistent with John's descriptions within 2 John. We have the lady's children, her technois, from the technia that we saw in 1 John. Those did not refer to literal children, but to believers in their position in the body of Christ. As well, he addresses her as one whom I love in truth. We're going to look at that in a minute. What does in truth mean? But not only I, but also all who know the truth. If this were an individual woman, it would be difficult to say that every single believer knows her and loves her. But as a member of the church, this is true. That even if they have not met her personally, have not met this congregation, that they love her because they love their brothers and sisters in the church. And the title of this woman as the chosen lady. This is indicative of the chosen body of Christ. 
John 15, 19 says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. This chosen body, this elect body of the church, because Jesus Christ, the chosen Son of God, we have taken on his identity. And we are chosen for a purpose. And that purpose is in him. Now, none of these evidences on their own weighs heavily enough to declare that this is the local church. It only leans in that direction. And it can be a little uncomfortable to take something as non-literally, but I think it is consistent with John's use of this word. I think John has indicated in 1 John that he is using these family terms metaphorically. And so we can have some comfort using this one metaphorically. However, there is one option that can be completely dismissed, that this is the universal church. If this is referring to a church, it is referring to a local body, a local expression of the universal church. Primarily because in 2 John verse 13, we see that this chosen lady has a sister. This is not true of the universal church. A local body could have a sister congregation. But the universal church, there is nothing else like it. There is only one body of Christ. I have heard the argument, though, that the chosen sister is elect Israel, and that this is the elect body of Christ, the church. Now, I like that this keeps a distinction between Israel and the church, but I think they forget that, especially at this time, the church is predominantly Jewish. The church was born out of the remnant of Israel. In fact, all who were believers in Israel, all who were the Israel of God, were in the church. Those outside of the church were not believers at all. And in Ephesians 2.14, we see that both groups, Jews and Gentiles, have become the one flesh of Christ. He himself is our peace, Paul writes, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, Israel and this addition of Gentiles into the body of Christ, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death enmity. There is no sister to the universal church. So what is then the occasion of 2 John? The author is John, and if he is writing to a local church body, we look again at some of this historical evidence that when 2 John was first received, it was treated as part of 1 John, quoted as if it were the same book, both by Irenaeus in 180 and then again by Aurelius in AD 256. In fact, 1 John existed in two states. It existed alone, and it existed together with 2 John, closely attached. And there's an excellent reason for this. And that comes partly in the lack of introduction to 1 John. 
Remember, of all the other letters, especially the ones that Paul wrote, there is a consistent introduction. Paul, to these believers in this location, grace and peace to you. John is consistent to do that in his other two letters, but not in the first letter of John. And why is that? Well, as we examined 1 John, we saw that it is more of a sermon than a letter. In fact, this was probably a sermon that John himself penned to deliver to his church in Ephesus, the one which he oversaw, the one which he had responsibility to guide and to teach. And this would need no letter of introduction. Just as when I get up each Sunday and present a sermon to you, I don't tell you who I am and address this sermon to all of you. There's no need. You know who I am. I know who you are. You know this presentation is for you. So as well, John wouldn't need to include an introduction like that to his own sermon, to his own congregation. But in his day, and as we see in the context of his books, there are traveling preachers. Because not every local body or local congregation had a leader capable of teaching. And so John would pass along these written sermons. And he would send it together with a cover letter. And one of those sermons was inspired by God, and its cover letter inspired as well. And so this cover letter, together with the sermon, was sent around as a circular letter to all the churches under John's oversight. First John, or Second John, is the introduction to First John. It is the greeting to every church that it would encounter. Oops, we can skip most of that. So with that understanding, let's move on to what the message of 2 John is. And the message can primarily be summed up in don't discard truth for love and don't discard love for truth. At any point when one is diminished to elevate the other, you have actually removed it from divine truth and divine love to human and fleshly love. It is no longer divine love if it is absent or diminished in truth. So we begin with verse 1 and see that the means of love is through truth. Second John, verse 1, the elder, John, to the chosen lady, a local congregation, and her children, the members of that congregation, whom I love in truth. Now, some have proposed that this in truth is an adverb, whom I truly love, or whom I love truthfully. But this is not a very good explanation, because this preposition plus the dative case is a case of means. This tells how something is done. And this is why it is rather challenging to interpret. How do you love someone by means of the truth? Well, that's exactly John's point. If love is divorced from truth, then it is not God's love. We have been trained in 1 John to love on the example of Jesus Christ, to love one another not with wishy-gushy feelings, but with hard, cold facts. This is not the world's idea of love. But you can love someone all the way to hell if you are loving them in the world's sense. 
But loving someone in God's sense is showing them the eternal life that was provided through Jesus Christ's ultimate demonstration of his love. So we could say to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love by means of the truth, John's expression of love to them is writing to them the truth that was revealed to him by God. The truth of who Christ was, the truth that he witnessed, this is John's act of love to this church. He is writing here concerned that they not abandon that truth for the sake of showing love in a human sense. Because the issue at hand in 2 John was that some of these churches were entertaining itinerant preachers who were preaching a false gospel. They wanted to extend brotherly love to these false teachers. And John is saying that is not love. That is not love to the body who is hearing these false words of these false teachers. And it is not loving to that one who claims to be in the truth because he is not in the truth. He has abandoned the truth. The most loving thing to do would be to rescue him out of that falsehood, praying for him and trying to help a brother avoid sin unto death. So then John's explanation of love here is that we love by means of the truth. Sharing the truth of God's love with them is how we love through God. John also expresses his motivation in terms of love. In 2 John verse 2, he says, For the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, for the sake of is a good translation, but it's not the simplest translation which gets the point across. Much more common than using the phrase for the sake of, we use the phrase because of. This is a causal term. The reason which John loves them is because of the truth. And because of what truth specifically? Well, that truth which he reveals in 1 John, that we have eternal life based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is both God and man. This truth is the reason he loves those in the body, and he reminds us of this, which abides in us, he says. Not just with him, but with all whom he is writing to, this truth is abiding in them, and it will be with them forever. That was his argument in the end of 1 John 5, that that is the testimony of God, that we have eternal life. And so we love one another because of the facts of the truth. And then in 2 John 3, we see this love manifested. 2 John 3, in the form of a benediction or a greeting to this group, he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Once again, truth and love intimately intertwined in the context of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, anticipating what's to come in, the, in 1 John, especially 1 John chapter 4, 
where John introduces us to that ultimate act of love, that point of calibration in history that all other love is measured up against. And so when we love, especially loving one another, it must be based on the truth of God's love and God's love towards us. And that is the basis here that John is giving to this congregation. But now remember these three words that John uses almost nowhere else. These are an expression of God's love towards us. Grace, mercy, and peace are definitely Pauline words, but they are not Johannine words. But they pack the content of what John takes a lot more words to explain to us coming up in his book. These might even be like a table of contents of what's to come in the sermon to Ephesus, the epistle of 1 John. Grace is receiving a good thing which we do not deserve. Notice this is not getting or obtaining, this is receiving a good thing which we do not deserve. We don't participate in this work. It is a gift. It is given. It is completely and totally the work of someone else. Mercy as well is not receiving punishment which we do deserve. Now, in part of God's integrity, he must hand out justice. But in his love and in his mercy, he takes on the punishment. This is again a gift towards us. We could not bear the punishment. The punishment would be eternal separation from him because we are not eternal in our flesh. It would destroy us. In fact, it does destroy many who refuse to receive this mercy. And peace is the result of receiving both grace and mercy, not getting what we do deserve and getting what we don't deserve. This is that peace that we have only on the basis of Christ's finished work. It is the doctrine of reconciliation that we have peace together with God, that he has paved that path for us to come to him in fellowship and to share his joy. The peace that has been provided by the cross is the other side of the joy that John is going to introduce us to in fellowship. And so grace is a gift we receive from God based on Christ's finished work. Mercy is a gift we receive from God based on Christ's finished work. These have nothing to do with us. And the result of the gift of salvation received through faith in Christ's finished work is peace. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, having received this grace and mercy by means of the avenue of faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now notice how this differs from a regular benediction. Usually it's in a subjunctive or an optative tense, which basically means, I hope that. I hope that you receive grace, mercy, and peace, is how Paul usually signs it. Usually it would be contingent in some manner on how they interact with the truths that he is revealing to them. But here John does not do that. He uses a future indicative. This is a declaration. 
Grace and mercy and peace will be with us. Because he is speaking here primarily with the finished work of Christ on the cross and the ultimate, what we will receive. Remember, he wants us to keep our eyes on the future. All of these are here present, ready, and able to be experienced in the body. But we keep our eyes trained on the future fulfillment of grace, mercy, and peace in its ultimate conclusion when we are glorified together with him. When the reality of who we are becomes the reality of our experience. This is what John means, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. He is calibrating their mindset. And it comes to us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. And in this syntax, he is equating these two. They both equally send grace, mercy, and peace in our direction. And this is in truth and in love. Now a little bit about truth and love. As I mentioned in the introduction, these are not balanced with one another. It's not a teeter-totter or a scale where we have to reduce the amount of truth in order to show love to someone or reduce the amount of love in order to tell someone a hard truth. No, this would be a bad analogy of John's theology. In fact, this would be completely contradictory to John's theology. The more truth you have, the more love you have in John's epistles. A better analogy might be truth is a whole bunch of lumber and love is the result of putting all that lumber together. Truth is doctrine. Truth is food for the soul. Truth comes to us in kernels called doctrine. And the Holy Spirit is a master baker who puts that together and applies it to our hearts. And so truth is a bunch of ingredients. In fact, some of these ingredients might be a little hard to swallow on their own. But the more doctrine we have, the more we apply it in the right circumstances, the more we learn to abide, the better the result is. The ingredients is doctrine, truth. The more we have, the bigger the cake. This is a perfect analogy of love, by the way. <laughs> First John 5.20, the chocolate, not necessarily the cake, not my favorite, but chocolate is excellent. First John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. We know Jesus Christ, this knowledge of him, as the knowledge of him increases, the experience of our love and intimacy together with him increases. We are in him who is true. The more we grasp and understand this truth, the more the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, that love, which is firm and solid and steadfast in the eternal, becomes our present experience and reality. This is the true God and eternal life. We are coming to know someone who is not just in agreement with truth, but the very essence of truth. The more of that we have, the more of his love we understand, and the more of his love we are able to use.
1 John 4.16, we have come to know and have believed. The object of these verbs has to be some sort of knowledge. You know some sort of a fact. You believe some sort of a fact. That fact is the love of God, which he has for us. Here's another fact. God is love. Love does not just agree with God. Love is who he is. The more truth we understand about him, the more truth we have for a bigger and better chocolate cake. This explains perfectly then John's excitement. He says, I was very glad. Remember, the point of First John was that our joy might be shared with him. He says here that he was very glad because he found some of her children walking in truth, speaking to the chosen lady, this congregation. Some of her children, this is a partitive. Partitive is just a fancy word for part of. Part of her children, not all of them. But those whom he encountered were walking in the truth. And this made him very joyful. And he writes this letter hoping that others would grow up in the truth. Others who have walked away from the tr truth would return to the truth so that his joy might increase. But here we see that even those who are walking faithfully in the truth, even those have made him exceedingly glad. Walking in the truth is essentially just being obedient to it, applying that truth. It is the application of the knowledge that we have. This is walking in truth. 1 John 3.23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. Just as he commanded us, and as we understand his word, as we understand who he is, the fact of who he is, love results. 1 John 2.27, remember, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things. Now, the things that you learn from a teacher, at least the things you're supposed to learn from a teacher, are facts. A teacher will explain things to you, break it down into pieces you can understand, will raise up the smallest child on their level to understand at a greater level. This is the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't reveal things outside of God's word to you, but it teaches you God's word. You have to feed it God's word in order for it to have material to feed. In fact, when we return to that metaphor of ingredients to make a cake, you are not the baker. The Holy Spirit is the baker that puts those ingredients together. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5.17 teaches the same thing. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. These are facts revealed in his word. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now this draws from a real uh, understanding of God's will for us that we not be drunk with wine, but he is using it for a metaphor of being controlled, fully consumed 
by something else. In the same way that when we drink wine, we become, or our mind changes together with it, and usually in proportion to how much we drink. The same is with the filling of the Holy Spirit. To be controlled by it. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is not the content of what we are filled with, but the filler. And the content of what he uses to fill us is truth. Being filled by the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is filling us with the understanding of God's truth. The result of that should be love. Because if we have truly understood God's word, if we have truly understood his love, then nothing short of love results. In fact, if you have truth and it's absent of love, you have not understood that truth. And if you have love that is absent of truth, it is not God's love. It is some sort of human love. Remember that all lies come from Satan. If love depends on a lie, it is not sourced in God. It is sourced in Satan. Galatians 5.16 says, I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by means of the Spirit. Let it be the means that you fulfill the life of the Christian. And you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. These are opposed to one another. These are contrasts, opposites. John likes those, although Paul wrote this. The Spirit is not the flesh. If you let the flesh take over, then you will not be walking by means of the Spirit. You will not be applying that truth. And any expression of love does not come from God, but it comes from the flesh, and it is perishing. But the Holy Spirit, when it is allowed to work in the body of the believer, when it has enough truth to work with, when it understands God's word and God's love, what it produces in the body of the believer is fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, notice this is a singular fruit. We don't have, this is my fruit of the Spirit, and this is my fruit of the Spirit, or I'm better at this and I'm better at that. These are the product of the Holy Spirit. These come from walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, number one, first and foremost, and then joy and peace. Notice that these are things that we receive and we feel, but also things that we can give. As we are filled with the Spirit, filled with the understanding of God's word, naturally we understand his love towards us. And that then is the product of the Spirit moving outwards as well. As well, there is patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All of these can be subsumed under the biblical concept of divine love. And we understand that at the cross. In 2 John verse 5, John changes gears here a bit. He lays down one final bit of doctrine before moving into a section of commands. How this congregation is to apply the truth that has been revealed. So he says, now I ask you, lady, another vocative, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. Based on the truth 
they are expected to love one another. The issue is they are trying to love one another in absence of the truth. We'll look at that more next week when we see or protecting truth and love. But this was the commandment from the beginning, going all the way back to when Jesus gave this to the disciples in the upper room. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, this was a new commandment when Jesus gave it because it was a new facet of love, a new calibration of love. Under the law, men were told to love one another as they love themselves. Not all in Israel were believers. This was something that even unbelievers could do. Even unbelievers can act selfishly, selflessly. Even they can replace, rather than putting themselves first, to put someone else first, especially a family member or someone they love. But here, this is a different calibration. One that an unbeliever simply cannot do because we in our flesh cannot do it. But only God can produce this sort of love in us. And so in essence, this commandment of Jesus boils down to abide in me and I in you. Because this fruit cannot be produced outside of abiding in the branches. We have to be sourced in Christ. We have to be firmly planted in the truth of his love, in the truth of God's word in order for this sort of love to flow through us. And the greater our understanding of this truth, the greater that love should be that is produced. If that truth that you are learning is not producing love, then I would, I would propose that you have not fully understood that truth. Come to a better understanding of God's word. Don't abandon it to show someone love, because that is no longer God's love. That's the easy way out that the world is offering you to become a useless Christian. Loving people to hell rather than loving them to the loving arms of the Father. So our main idea this morning was God is truth. And to know truth, we must know his word. God is love. And to know love, we must learn it from his revelation of himself in his word. The Holy Spirit does the job of applying this in us. Truth and love are not opposed or balanced. They are interdependent. With truth preceding love, truth produces love in the believer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this wonderful, short epistle. We've already begun to see its value in the canon. This, this emphasis on the need for truth to be involved with love that love cannot be produced apart from your word. So we praise you that you have given us that ability to abide in you, to learn your word and to learn your truth. And we thank you for the gift of the spirit, which applies that in our hearts. We pray that we would be obedient to study your word and obedient to do those things, which, we, which is revealed to be your will. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.